Cranberry farmers grow a lot of cranberries, and some of them are rotten. How to tell the rotten cranberries from the non-rotten ones when you're getting ready to put them in that plastic bag and bring them to the market for Thanksgiving? Well, here's what you do. You roll them down a ramp and have them bounce off a board. And the ones that bounce high enough make it onto a platform that gets them in the bag. And the ones that don't go into the giant cranberry bog of doom. Hey, it's Seth. And this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about peppers and people. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Make things better. That's the goal. Make things better by making better things. That's marketing. Marketing works. It works because we show up in the world with something that makes a change for the better. And we've discovered the single best way to learn marketing. It's called the Marketing Seminar, an interactive, ongoing, discussion-based, project-based workshop that actually works. It's back. It's back again at akimbo.com slash go. Find all the details. If you are serious about changing the culture, if you are serious about showing up in a way that grows your project, your business, your cause, I hope you'll check out the Marketing Seminar. It's at akimbo.com slash go. It's back. It works because you do. We'll see you there. Okay, that makes sense. It's an efficient, scalable way to sort cranberries. What about peppers? What if you don't like spice? Or what if you do like spice? And you're out with some friends eating padron peppers or shishito peppers blistered in oil on a hot pan. How to tell the difference between the spicy ones and the non-spicy ones. It turns out that for genetic reasons, about one in 10 padron peppers are spicy and nine out of 10 are not. And there are no peppers in between. Peppers aren't like cranberries. Cranberries are on a scale. Between the super rotten ones and the super good ones is a spectrum of cranberries. Not so with peppers. Either a pepper is spicy or it's not. There is no in-between. So let's talk for a second about the normal distribution. It's easy to misunderstand, and I'm intentionally doing this via audio so we don't get caught up in pictures. If we invited every single person in a town of 10,000 to stand in order of birth date, we would have an even distribution, give or take, with the same number of people standing on each one of the 365 days a year with slight seasonal variation. But if I asked the very same people to stand in order of height to a quarter of an inch, we would see a normal distribution. Some percentage of the people would be below five feet tall, but just a few people would be below, say, four foot six. A bunch of people, about the same number, would be above six foot six, but just a few would be above seven feet. And a significant number of people would be clumped together in the middle. We call that distribution, which shows up in an enormous number of places, the normal distribution. We can do all sorts of interesting statistics on how this distribution works out. And it's all fine. It's all easily understood. Until I ask you the following question. Who is tall? 
Among these 10,000 people, who is tall? Pick. Now, are you saying that the person who is a quarter inch less in height isn't tall? And the one who's slightly taller than wherever you do the line is tall? Well, it's pretty easy in this case to waffle a little bit. So let me ask you a different question. If it's New Year's Eve and we've set up a safety roadblock, who is drunk? Who should not be permitted to keep driving? Because we've got machines that can measure blood alcohol levels. And while they vary from precinct to precinct, from place to place, within a place, the law is the law. We needed to pick a number. Because if we didn't pick a number, we would have a lot of trouble deciding who was drunk and should get a ticket and who isn't drunk and who should simply get waved off with a warning. The question, of course, is if the person who isn't drunk had a quarter of a thimble more whiskey, would they suddenly become drunk? Or is there, in fact, a distribution of how people behave once they've had a bunch to drink? And of course, yes, it's true, different people metabolize alcohol differently. We don't spend a lot of time arguing about this. Basically, we say don't drink and drive. Don't even get close to the line because it's a matter of life or death. But what about other issues of life or death or labeling? Who has autism? How do we know? Is it like a spicy pepper where either you have it or you don't? Almost certainly not. Scott Alexander, the blogger and psychiatrist, has written extensively about something he calls taxometrics. It's not clear to me it's a field of art yet, but it should be. And what it says is, that when we try to label somebody based on some behaviors that are non-digital, based on some attributes that aren't easily measured except for this one thing we're choosing to measure on, we're going to get it wrong almost every time. Because just about everything about people is like cranberries. It's on a spectrum. It's on a spectrum because some people have more autism than others. Some people have more ADHD than others. We cannot label somebody perfectly. And since we can't, since we have to understand that it's all on a spectrum, we have to be very careful about the consequences of those labels. Who, for example, is certified? Does certified mean you came from one specific institution, got better than a certain number on one standardized test, that someone who got one point lower is forever barred from doing whatever it is you need them to do? Who is qualified? Are we compounding early successes by limiting the number of people who get later successes? So for example, in China, there's a very rigorous test that determines if you're going to get to go to the next level of school. And if you get into that school, Everybody else doesn't get in. There's a hard filter right there, in or out, one way or the other. And then we keep compounding the successes on and on and on for the people who made it through that filter, even if it was just by one point. Our history is filled with shameful and tragic examples of what happens when we try to put labels on people to sort them when in fact it might be on a spectrum. Who's Jewish? Who's black? Who's a boy? Who's a girl? 
Once we decide that someone is the other, once we decide that someone is an outcast or insufficient, putting them into a bucket, it makes it easier for us to treat them as less than human because they're not on a spectrum with us. They're apart. They are separate. And that's a mistake. All of it happens because we're in such a hurry to not see the individual. Because it's so much easier to say, you have this disease, therefore take these pills and go away. Or it's so much easier to say, you are qualified. Here is even more privilege. Go ahead and be in charge. By lumping people into easy buckets, we don't have to consider what's actually going on. We don't have to consider the fact that with so many spectra all interacting with each other, each person is in fact unique. That doesn't mean we can walk away from professionalism. It doesn't mean we can walk away from people who have done the work, who have understood what came before, who are actually competent to do the work. It's even more important now that we do that because so many of these roles have significant amounts of leverage. But we often decide based on false information appearing real. We often decide based on metrics that are simply stand-ins because we're so busy trying to sort people early and often. It turns out that many of the contributions that we care about were made by people who didn't fit the mold, who didn't get the taxometric label that we are busy giving to other people. They come out of left field. They don't appear qualified. They show up and actually do the work instead of appearing to have some sort of digital label on them that says they're entitled to do the work. We need to give people the benefit of the doubt. It's too hard to take all comers at their word. We need to figure out how to sort people. But when we're busy sorting them, based on a model of scarcity, we almost always get it wrong. We label people as unhealthy when they're not. We label people as leaders when they haven't earned it. It's all on a spectrum. So this is a rant designed to help us think deeply about how we decided who we're going to follow, who we're going to trust, who we're going to label, who we're going to medicate, who we're going to let in, and who we're going to keep out. Because those errors are really expensive. They are shameful. They hurt our human potential. And they corrode us. As we are building this network, the one that knows so much about so many elements of our life, the distribution is now an even more clear relief. We can figure out what people have done and what they could do. We can start granting the benefit of the doubt differently. And when we do that, we will create possibility for the people who haven't had it before. Thanks for listening to my rant. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with three questions from previous episodes. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. When is it time to level up? When is it time to learn a new way to see the world, to connect with others, to lead, to engage in possibility? Akimbo is a B Corp, an independently owned and operated institution designed around learning, not education, not certificates, not grades, but learning together. It works if you do the work. I hope you'll check out what the people at Akimbo are up to. Visit akimbo.com go to find out about their new upcoming workshops and how it all works. Thanks.
Hey Seth, my name is Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or any previous episode, I hope you'll visit akimbo.link. That's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K and click the appropriate button. The questions continue to be more and more far-reaching. Here we go. Hi, Seth. It's Eli Kentish in Washington, D.C. I'm a video producer and journalist, and I use woodworking as a hobby to kind of clear my mind, use my hands, um, and... Uh, I guess, use a different part of my brain uh, than I do at work. I noticed you mentioned woodworking um, from time to time on your podcast. What's your relationship with woodworking? Thanks for this, Eli. So many metaphors in woodworking. We'll start with a couple. First of all, sooner or later, you're going to use a dangerous tool. The table saw is at the top of that list. But even when we're talking about hand tools, things like a fro, If you're not careful, you might have a hand tool, but you won't have a hand. And this focuses the mind. The second part of the tool metaphor is that sharpened tools work so much better than non-sharpened tools. I learned how to do woodworking from Bobby Cates. And Bobby taught me how to make canoe paddles out of a piece of cherry wood. And I confess, the first three paddles I made were with a spokeshave that had never once been sharpened. It just got duller and duller, and I thought that's the way it was supposed to be. So at 17, when I discovered that tools could be sharpened and that sharpening itself was a craft, another metaphor arises. One of the things I like about woodworking is that most of it is about taking something away. You can't put anything back. And so there is a deliberate sort of subtraction, which feels like a path that, as Michelangelo said, the goal is to take away all the stuff that doesn't belong, and what you're left with is what you set out to make in the first place. Another metaphor is the idea that you're never done unless you announce to yourself that you're done. You can always make it a little smoother. You can always sand it a little longer. People who know me won't have any trouble guessing that that's not what I do. I seek out a level of appropriate finish for the tool I am building, because almost everything I make out of wood is a tool, primarily a canoe paddle, or possibly a canoe, and then I don't go any further, because everything has an opportunity cost. So yeah, I love making canoe paddles. Maybe one day I'll list one or two for sale, but I don't think so. Hi, Seth. This is Hamad from London. I'm a music producer, and I've recently started producing music live on my streaming channel on YouTube, where people send their singing through their phone mics. So it's for people who just want to try out or want to see this music industry, how it works, can they sing, etc. Now, I've, I've created a small community around it, and they are very loyal, almost. They, they all turn up, and it's like a nice collaborative effort we're doing on this live stream. But at the same time, the numbers are still growing very slowly. It's been six months now. And I want to know if I'm going through a dip or do I just stick with it just because I enjoy it? 
or if the monetarily if the return is not great how long do i have to wait before i say okay that's it i think i've done enough enough work uh, it would be great if you can talk about the idea of enjoying your work but still understanding is it still worth keep doing it just for maybe something will happen in future thank you and as always thanks for these great podcasts thank you for this ma this is a question that businesses and individuals wrestle with all the time which is does it happen all at once do we become an overnight success is an overnight success a myth is it the winner of a raffle or a lottery is there a path forward and what i would ask are two questions question number 1 has anyone in your field ever once deliberately made it from where you are to where you want to go if the answer is no if the answer is you want to be the trendsetter the person who goes from nothing to 100 miles an hour on a bicycle i think that that's a quest and you're entitled to a quest but i don't think you should mortgage your house in anticipation of a quest because it's not reliable but if someone has come down this path before then the second question is this when they were in the early days what were the signals that they saw that gave them hope that are hints that are symptoms that something's going to work so if you think about a band trying to make it from the coffee shop circuit on its way up the question is after you play on friday night does anyone come back again on saturday if the answer is no if 30 people don't turn into 35 people then maybe you're in the wrong place with the wrong music or maybe you need to work a lot more on your skill but what we know the famous example of Arlo Guthrie playing at the Newport Folk Festival now sure Arlo was royalty his father Woody Guthrie was the king of all the folk singers but all that meant was that 15 people came to hear that first rendition of Alice's restaurant but then a few hours later they asked him to come back and play it again for 60 or 100 i'm making up the numbers and then one more time and one more time until he was the closing act and that's when Arlo Guthrie became Arlo Guthrie can you imagine three people walking in singing a bar Alice's restaurant and walking out they may think it's an organization and can you can you imagine 50 people a day i said 50 people a day walking in singing a bar Alice's restaurant and walking out and friends they may think it's a movement and that's what it is the Alice's restaurant anti-massacre movement and all you got to do to join is to sing it the next time it comes around on the guitar it doesn't have to happen in a weekend it doesn't have to happen at a festival but if it's not happening at all Well then maybe what you're making isn't as remarkable as it could be. So good luck with this work. I hope you can look at it with clear eyes and if you persist I'm wishing you the best with it. Hey Seth, this is Anton from Hamburg, Germany. I have another question. I just finished listening to the conversation that Jack Novogratz and Chris Tippett had where they invited you on Clubhouse. And what you shared was that now looking back at your 30 year run of going into the direction you were going of giving talks traveling the world giving speeches writing books that 
looking at the future and the time that is now ahead of you, you think that there could have been other ways you spend the 30 years which were closer to what you think is important now. And I actually fear being at that point. So I'm wondering how do you deal with that? And what can someone that is looking at a 30-year run take away from that and make sure that we pick a path that no longer is about what we would enjoy, but about what is needed and where we find the skills that we can offer the world and find a matching field in which applying them can make a huge difference. Thank you for this, Anton. There's a lot in this. What I said to my friends Jacqueline and Krista was this. Not that I regret the work that I've been doing my entire professional life in public. I wouldn't trade much of any of it away. That in that moment, when I was doing that thing, it was exactly what I needed and wanted to do. And the privilege and joy of being able to go on this journey with you and so many others has been, I, I, it makes me speechless. I don't even have words for it. But what I discovered during the enforced lockdown is that I didn't have to get on another airplane, that I could continue to do this work at a bigger scale with more depth without showing up at a conference hall in Las Vegas or flying to Bogota. Because going to where people are, it's a treat and it's a privilege, but it's also really wasteful when we think about the impact on the planet. And it also creates an enormous amount of wasted time and wear and tear on the person who's busy doing it. So my goal is to dig deeper on the work that we need to do as a community because it's community action that's going to help us go forward that I believe in the power of an individual as much as just about anyone, that we need people brave enough to be linchpins who will stand up and lead, who will say, follow me, who will create the work that matters. But then we have to add into it a bias toward community action to understand that all effects have side effects and that side effects are merely effects. And we don't have an infinite amount of time or an infinite number of resources. And it is possible to make things better by making better things. Thank you to you and to everybody else who's listening. We'll see you next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in, in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know? And none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like we have data. What All MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, Yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas. You got access to information. That's awesome. But when are you going to show up? When are you going to face that blank page? 
When are you going to face the possibilities within you? When are you going to face those fears? I'm not going to let you hide. You got to show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple. It sounds very commonsensical. But it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.